0: 2 is where we're going to be um, great to see you this morning this is without a doubt my favorite time of the week getting to see you guys so it's great to see you great to have you here Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 is where we're going to start um, and so I, I want to preface all of this with I have big hopes for today if there was one if you were to come to me and say I'm going to memorize 10 verses in the Bible what 10 should I do I would probably say Ephesians 2 1 through 10 It is like one of those passages in the Bible that speaks so clearly to who we are and what Christ has done. It speaks so clearly to the gospel. So I have huge hopes this morning that, that when you're asked questions about the gospel, that God might shine light on Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 in such a way that your mind would instantly go there to answer questions about who people are and who God is and what he has done. So I have huge hopes for us this morning. I hope God really speaks um really strongly to your heart and then he really moves in a good way and settles some things over and in your heart. Um okay so Laura and I got married about eight years ago now something like that. And uh when we first got married we didn't have a whole lot. I mean we're living in an apartment and I, I'm, there's just a few things that really stick out to me. We had no recliner. Alright? And so we sort of had a recliner. It was one of those Walmart camping folded out those chairs. That was our recliner, right? And so we had we didn't have a couch. So we're living in an apartment and for our couch, somebody had given Laura this old wicker, um, like used to be patio furniture type stuff. You know, like it was like a two seater that used to be on a patio. We've got it in our, that's our couch. Um, our, our TV stand, this is probably my favorite. Our TV stand was this nasty looking wicker kind of matches patio furniture look, right? And so it, it was really bad. And so about four and a half years into marriage, um, we finally get a house and and we make the leap to cable TV. This was a drastic change for us. Four and a half years, we never had cable. We get cable. And that is where I was introduced to one of man's greatest inventions. ESPN is is at the top of that list, but this is not what I have in mind. TiVo. I got introduced to TiVo. Is TiVo not a beautiful thing? I mean, that, that is a life-changing moment when some brilliant guy invented TiVo. And so, now, now here's how this plays out. I, I'm starting to be able to watch things I've never watched before, right? I mean, you can watch a whole football game in like 15 minutes. It's great. And so, um, the other day I'm sitting on the couch and I catch the very end of a, of a show on the Discovery Channel. Now, every guy loves the Discovery Channel, right? Okay, so I, I catch the, the very tail end of a show called I Shouldn't Be Alive. Every guy loves that title too, right? And so, uh, so I, I catch the very end of it and I just Tebow the whole series. You know, it kind of comes up with the whole, just every episode I'm in. And so a couple of weeks later, I'm on the couch and I pull up the I Shouldn't Be Alives. If you've ever seen them, you, you know the stories here, right? And so, so here was the first one I watched. A guy and a girl were scuba diving. A storm blows in, blows their boat several hundred yards down, kind of of off of where they were. They come up. They're trying to get the attention of the boat. The boat's motor is running to kind of keep it level in the current. They can't hear. Eventually, the boat's about to run out of gas. They have to leave that man and that woman in the water scuba diving. This goes on for, I think, almost two days. They're in the water. Right? I mean, the the lady gets like her leg bit off by a shark. I'm just joking. I mean, she survived, right? I mean, seriously. And so, um, like literally, there's this one point where this swarm of jellyfish come through. Sharks are checking them out all the time. Don't bite them. But, but just this drastic crisis moment. Another one. They're in the Amazon rainforest. The guy and a girl, former kind of dating guys, you know, sort of a deal, and uh, they're no longer. So it's already a little bit awkward. And uh, so they're bird watching in the Amazon. I don't know how they both arrive in the Amazon, but they're, they're bird watching in the Amazon. They get off the trail and they think they're walking back to where they should be going. And they're walking right into the heart of the Amazon. And so they spend like two days in the middle of the Amazon, right? And so at night they're hearing big animals. Let I mean, all that stuff, insects are just destroying, eating them alive. Bad day. Finally, the girl looks at the guy and says, where's the knife? You're like, come on. I mean, be an optimist at least, right? Like she is ready to do this thing right there. Crisis moment, right? Crisis. Uh, my favorite one is a guy, his son, has is an, he lives in Alaska, invited his dad to come to Alaska on a fishing trip. Gets the dad up there. They get their gear, get the boat, get dropped off in the middle of nowhere. They are 70 miles from the nearest city, near, nearest town. It's not even a city, it's a town village 70 miles from the nearest village nobody is expecting them for seven days they have no way of communicating that's the context they get out there and within the first 10 minutes they're going down this river and they look up and there's that oh no moment there is a sheet of ice stretching all the way across the river their little raft boat thing runs into it flips the raft their guns are gone their supplies are gone their food's gone everything is gone not only that that water sucks them under that ice crisis moment right now right okay so so they're trying to come up for breath about to die i mean about to just call it quits they pop up the other side they've made it they look down the river here comes another sheet of ice right up underneath that one about to die about to die shoot out from under the other side They get out, the dad's suffering from hypothermia, they build kind of a makeshift shelter, the next morning the son says, I'm leaving, I'm going to to try to do something, I'm going to walk 70 miles, bear infested, I'm going to walk 70 miles to the nearest city, right? Crisis moment. Okay, so picture yourself, I don't know what your crisis moment is, but picture yourself in that sort of a crisis situation. I mean, maybe you're in the airplane and it's going down, that's crisis, right? Right? Maybe you, and this happened to one of my parents' friends here recently, uh, husband and wife, wake up in the middle of the night, there is a man in their master bedroom. That's a crisis situation, right? That's crisis. Okay, just picture yourself in that sort of a crisis situation, surrounded by cats, right? I mean, maybe even worse, maybe even worse, UT fans. I don't know, maybe. I'm joking, don't hate me, seriously. Okay, so, so picture yourself in that sort of a crisis situation, and now I want you to look at me. If you are apart from Jesus Christ, your condition is more threatening and more urgent than anything you could imagine. So whatever popped into your brain, crisis situation. Apart from Christ, your condition is more threatening and more urgent than anything you could imagine. Now, now, Ephesians is about to go here with us, and it's going to show us why. And, and I, I want to just throw this out there before, before we jump into it, that there are certain passages of scripture that we could preach this morning that, that wouldn't have a whole lot of risk in, in rubbing people the wrong way. Like if we were preaching Matthew five fourteen that we're the lie of the world, it, it doesn't matter who you are in this room, you'd probably say, yeah, I like it, let's do it. But, but when we start preaching Ephesians chapter 2, it doesn't just ruffle feathers, it kind of de-feathers the whole bird. That's what it does. Okay, so I, I just want to tell you that there's a risk this morning when you preach stuff like this. And uh, with that, I, I want to say this, that, that if something rubs you the wrong way, take it to the text, not the teacher. Take it to the text. I, if you've got a problem with it, make sure you've got a problem with the Bible and not me, Right? And and so this was the thing I prayed. Whenever I knew that God was calling me to preach publicly on a consistent basis, the the first thing I prayed is that God would give me the courage to fear him, not you. And and so in, in a message like this, there is risk involved. I'm perfectly willing to risk it. But I just want you to make sure that if you've got a problem with what you hear, because I hope it's a little offensive. It should be. So if you've got a problem with it, make sure you take it to the text and your problem is dealt with there. Okay, so Ephesians chapter 2, here's the context. Um, Paul is, is, is laying out spiritual conditions. Here it is apart from Jesus, and here it is in Jesus. And there is a massive contrast between the two. And later on in chapter 2, look at verse 11 and 12. He's going to tell the people in Ephesus, you need to remember your spiritual history. You need to remember who you were. You need to remember that as well as who you are. You need to have an appreciation from where God has rescued you. So you need to remember that. So he is laying out the spiritual condition of these people and he's telling them, listen, this is who you were apart from Christ. This is who you were in Christ. And your situation apart from Christ is more threatening, is more urgent than anything you could possibly imagine. Okay, let's pick it up in verse 1 here. Here's what Paul says. The, the reason it's more threatening, more urgent, he says this, and you were dead, not kind of sick, not not just under the weather, you are you were dead in the trespasses and sins of verse two, in which you once walked. Encircle that word dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins. And so here's the gravity of what Paul is saying here. The gravity of the situation. Why our situation is more urgent and more threatened than anything you can imagine is because we are dead in our sins. We're dead in them. Okay, that means... Let me illustrate it with this. About... I guess I was like towards the the beginning years of college i got invited to go on a hunt to south texas i just bought in a bow and arrow and they were having to call a lot of the the does off of this game ranch and so i go down there with my bow and arrow and by the way i've killed two deer with my bow and arrow i am two for two with a bow and a deer two for two now my brother is like a hunter way over his head he's in south texas this weekend doing whatever he's doing, killing. I don't even, I never heard of the animal he's killing, right? And so, I mean, he is way over his head. And he'll come back and tell me all the time about these these deer, these animals that he's missing with his bow and arrow. So I always give him a hard time, two for two, batting a thousand. I, I barely shoot bow. I, I don't practice that, you know, two for two. Okay, here was my first story with it, though. And this is what really rubs him the wrong way. Um, so I'm up there in the stand, got my bow, the whole deal. I mean, I've had a bow for maybe um, three or four months here comes the deer. I pull it back. I shoot. And I hit that deer right in the glutamus maximus, right? Right here. Now, typically, you don't kill that deer. This deer was paralyzed with a shot in the hiney. I don't know how that happens, right? Now, you just picture what goes on from there. And if you're an animal rights guy, I'm sorry right now. I just I mean, you just picture this. I get down out of the stand and that deer looks at me. I look at him. Eye contact. I wanted to quit hunting at that second, right? I am hating life right now. That's what I'm doing. So, so he looks at me. I look at him. And he is doing everything he can to get away from me. Okay, so now let's back up. Finally, that deer dies. Okay, now, now here's what I learned in that moment. There is a massive difference between being hurt and being dead, from being sick and being dead. Massive difference. And in our culture, we don't deal just a whole lot with death. We kind of outsource all that. So, so here's what Paul is saying. I, I think this is just real vivid imagery, right? I, can, I mean, he is throwing a vivid portrait over the top of our spiritual condition. And he is saying spiritually, you are dead, not sick, not under the weather. You're dead. Now, now here's what being dead means. Spiritually dead means that we are unresponsive to God. That's what, when you are dead, you are unresponsive, right? I mean, dead people don't want, dead people don't feel, dead deer don't know when you poke them. They don't know any of that. When you are dead, you are unresponsive to everything and everybody. When you are spiritually dead, you are unresponsive to God. You don't want God. You don't pursue God. You don't love God. You are walking in the other direction and doing it in joy when you're dead. You are unresponsive that's what being spiritually dead means okay so so here's another thing that it means it's going to be not only that you're unresponsive but that you're in active rebellion so it's not just a passive um okay i'm I'm dead so he's there no it's active rebellion in the other direction i mean look what he says here you're dead in what in the trespasses and sins that is active That is an active committing of sin. He is saying, listen, it's not just that you don't respond to God. It is that you are in active rebellion against God. That's what you are. You're dead in your trespasses, in your sins. You are actively walking in the other direction. You're in active rebellion against it. Okay, and then the next one, spiritually dead. It's not only unresponsive, not only active rebellion, But you've also got this piece of it. Spiritually dead means you're unable to help yourselves. That that it's not that you can do something about it. Spiritually dead means that you don't respond to anything. It means that there is no response. Now, this is the most popular way of presenting the gospel in our culture. It goes like this. Something along this line. You might have heard a a different variation of it. but Something along this line. That, that, That your condition apart from Christ is like you being on your deathbed. So you are gravely ill in the hospital. I mean, you are gasping for breath. And all of a sudden, the doctor walks in. He's got the cure in hand, pours a little bit of it in the spoon. You kind of squint through one eye and you see him coming. So you know all you have to do is open your mouth. So he comes with the cure. All you do is cooperate and open your mouth to him. He drops the medicine in, goes down into your stomach, in your blood and you're saved, you're cured. Here's the problem with that. Dead people don't open their mouth. Here's the problem with that. Dead people don't see. Here's the problem. Dead people don't want medicine. They don't want any of them. That's our condition apart from Christ. Th- th- I mean, that's it. okay so you said isn't he called like the great physician yeah and he's called the great physician not because we are on our deathbed but because we are dead and because he injects the cure into us that brings us back to life and he does it with the voice of his mouth that's why he's the great physician okay listen to me here christianity the gospel is not about making bad people good that is not the goal of Christianity. That's not what it's about. It is about making dead people, non-responsive, actively in rebellion, actively got the finger up against God, that person about making them alive. That's what it's about. That's the gospel. Okay, so here, here we go. Let's keep it rolling here. By the way, it gets worse. So we're not just dead. Paul keeps pressing it, right? And here's where it goes. what it goes on to say. And you were dead, verse 1. You were dead in the trespasses and sin, verse 2, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, verse 3, among whom we all once lived, following... Kind of this idea of following in, the same word following. So so we're living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. So it's not just that we're dead in sin. Here's the next thing that Paul's going to press on. Not only that we're dead in it, but we're enslaved to it. That we are slaves of sin. Okay, now, now here's what he's going to press on with this. He's going to say this, that you're enslaved to three different things here. First one, you're enslaved to the world. Okay, and look what he says there. I think it's in verse 3. Verse 2, that, that you're following what? The course of the world. So, so he's saying you're enslaved to it. You are a slave to the world. Okay, so now when you think about the, the word world in the scriptures, sometimes it's used with a positive light, right? It's like in a John three sixteen, God says, for I so love the world, right? So I love the world. Okay, so that, that's his positive light. He's talking about people, his image bearers. Okay, now in 1 John two fifteen, he's going to say this though. Don't love the world. And if you do, the love of the Father is not in you. So, so there's a positive sense. Creation is image bearers. But there's also this negative sense. And the negative sense of world, it is this settled disposition on the world, on people, that apart from Jesus, they are hostile to God. That's what the world is. A settled disposition, this, the way culture works, that is hostile, that's got a stiff arm towards God. That, that's the world. And he's saying, you are enslaved to it. Okay, so when you think about the world being hostile to God, I, I don't think I have to do just a whole lot of convincing here. Like, if you just start looking around, I think you see it pretty clearly, right? And so if you just bring up, if you're around the water cooler, and you bring up Jesus, you probably shut down the conversation, right? I mean, it probably just turned to nothing. Okay, so so you see it really quickly. And this is, like, Romans 8 is going to say that people in the flesh... They are hostile to God. They're hostile to him. So apart from Jesus, people are always going to be hostile to God. They're always going to be hostile to Jesus. Apart from Christ, we are in the flesh hostile. We are at war with God. So he's saying, you're a slave to it. You're, you're, you're a slave to this way the culture works. Hostile to God. And you see it in a thousand different ways. You see it in the way we treat sex, right? I mean, God says, I've got a beautiful creation here. It's a creation of a creative God, a good God. And what do we do with it? We distort that. We rip it out of the godly boundaries that it's meant to go in, right? And, okay, a quarter of all web searches are pornography-related. So, so we have ripped it out of God's way of doing it and done it our own Done in our own way. So we're enslaved to this course of the world. Right? I mean, think of possessions. People enslaved to it. I mean the measure of a man has become his money. And if you don't think that's in the church, check how you have used the word successful, maybe the last ten times. What it's gone to describe. Enslaved to this course of the world. This alien disposition, this, this hostile to God, this disposition that shakes our fist at God in rebellion. Okay, so he goes on. He says, not not only a slave to the world, but, but you're a slave to the enemy, to Satan, right? I mean, look what he comes on, like the next phrase there. You're following the course of this world. You're following the prince of the power of the air, a.k.a. the enemy, Satan, the, the spirit, Satan, that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So, I mean, you really want to weird somebody out in a hurry, just bring that up, right? I believe in Satan, right? I mean, so, so you get that right off the cuff. But listen, the Bible's not joking. I mean, the Bible's not, not lying when it says in Ephesians 6 that our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is not against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world. It's not there. It is not against flesh and blood. It is against this unseen thing. Okay, so the Bible's going to say Satan is real, right? I mean, it's going to say in in John 8 that he's the father of lies. In 1 Corinthians, that he masquerades as an angel of light. That's pretty scary, right? He can also appear something really good, too. In in 1 Peter, it's going to say that he kind of prowls around like a roaring lion. That's not a real good thing when you've got a lion trying to devour you, Right? And so I think we need to hear this. Everybody hears that God has a plan for your life. Agree, right? Everybody hears that. But listen here. We also need to hear that Satan does too. Husbands, you want to walk in disobedience? You walk straight down Satan's road for you. Wives, you want to walk in disobedience? You're walking straight down Satan's plan for you. Straight down his road. And Paul is saying, listen, you are enslaved, not just to the world, but to your enemy. Apart from Christ, he is your master. Okay, and then he uses this other term in verse 3. He says this, among whom you once lived in, what's it, the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, that we're not just enslaved to the world, to the enemy, but we're also enslaved to our flesh, to our sinful passions. Right? I mean, we're just enslaved to the next thing that our hearts wants to to grab. The next thing it wants to run after. I think there's this big myth to slavery that goes like this. To being enslaved. That that goes, no, I want to be my own man. I don't want to submit to God. I don't want him to be my master. I want to do my own thing. And listen, here's what you've just done when you said that. You've just chosen a different master. And it's not a good one. You've just chosen your desires, your flesh, to be your master. You've just made a real bad trade there. But we've all got a master. It's just dependent upon, is it a good one or a bad one? Is it God or is it your flesh? Okay, so he's saying, listen, you're enslaved to the world, you're enslaved to your enemy... And you're enslaved to to your flesh, to, to the desires of the body. Okay, so this is Paul saying, listen, this is your condition apart from Christ. You are dead in your sin and you are enslaved in your sin. This is who you are. Without Jesus, this is all of us. It's not one of us, it's all of us. Okay, it gets worse. Here's the last part. It's not only dead, not only enslaved, but we're also condemned in our sin. Look at verse 3 here, the last couple of phrases here. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. Now look at these last two phrases. And were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Here's what he's saying. We're all condemned by sin. We're all there. All of us in here. And he's saying, listen, this is what it means to be condemned by sin. That we are under the wrath of God. That's what it means. That apart from Christ, the wrath of God sits over our life and is aimed at our life. That's what being condemned by sin, sin means. That, that's what it means when he says, you are an object of God's wrath. It means that we are under the wrath of God. The wrath of God is not arbitrary. The wrath of God is not a husband that flies off the handle. The wrath of God is not having to walk on eggshells around an angry man. If you are that man, we need to repent of that. That is not the wrath of God. The wrath of God is his settled resolve to righteously judge sin. That's the wrath of God. And listen, it seldom comes in a lightning bolt. Romans 1, here's the picture of wrath of God in Romans 1. It is letting you go to have what your heart wants. That's wrath letting you go to have what your heart wants. And he is saying, listen, you are under the wrath of God. It has got a present feel to it, and it has got a future reality. Present feel, you have it. You take what you want. Future reality, we all stand, every one of us in here, we all stand before our great God and judge, every one of us. And Hebrews is not lying when it says it is a frightening thing, a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That is a scary picture. Amen. But isn't it a beautiful picture that in Ephesians 2, 12 or 13, 14, it's going to say that in Christ, he, Christ has become our peace. So no longer do we have to fear falling into the hands of God. His wrath is no longer on us. His grace is on us in Christ we are under the settled resolve of god to judge sin righteously that's what it means to be under sin and let me kind of clear up this last point in that that his his just or his justice his wrath i mean that is a holy and a righteous thing it is a just thing it is not god judging innocent people it is god judging people dead in their sin unresponsive to him it is god judging people that are in active rebellion, shaking their fist at God all the way along. And let me tell you, it's joyfully doing that. That is us apart from Christ, joyfully shaking our fist at God as we live away from him. And we're condemned for that. That's what he's saying. That apart from Jesus, your condition is more threatening, is more urgent than anything you could possibly imagine. We are dead, enslaved, and condemned by our sin. Now, does that rub you the wrong way? Let me just ask you that question. Does that rub you the wrong way? That we have turned our back on God's godness and His goodness. And we have walked our own way. That's us. That's me. That's you. That is every Okay, listen to me here. That's all of us. It's not him and her. It is you and I. It is us. Every one of us. That is our condition. And listen, until we start to see that way, this will never make sense until we start to see that way until we get the biblical lens on we'll always apply band-aids to the world's problems I mean you walk in Barnes and Noble tomorrow every book in there is a self-help book it's you help yourself by getting your checkbook right you help yourself by, by just getting a little more knowledge you help yourself by this you help yourself by that and until we start to see biblically Ephesians 2 1-3 that this is our problem we'll always have superficial remedies I am all for for better education and better legislation but listen that is not our hope and it's not our answer that is a band-aid christ is the answer listen until the gospel sobers you it will never satisfy you until the gospel sobers you you're dead in your sin you're enslaved you're condemned in it until it sobers you it will never satisfy you it'll never happen Until you see your grave situation, Christ will never appear as a glorious Savior. It'll never happen. Okay, let's look at verse 4 now. Ephesians 2, 1 through 7 is one sentence. One sentence, seven verses. The main subject and the main verb have not been introduced yet. Verse 4 is where they get introduced. This is where the subject happens. This is where the main verb happens in verse 5. So subject and verb, that's the point. The point is not we are condemned in sin, we are dead in sin, we're enslaved to sin. All that is is a backdrop for the grace of God to shine. That's all it is. It's not the emphasis. It's got to be there. It's the backdrop. But here comes the emphasis in verse 4. Verse 4, first word. First two words, but God. But is the contrast, right? It's the beautiful contrast. This is who we were, but this is who we now are. Why? Because of God. But God, he is the initiator. He is the cause. He is the remedy. But God, and look what it says about him. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Verse five, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive main verb you must circle that made us alive main verb together with christ by grace you have been saved verse 6 and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in christ jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in christ jesus verse 8 really popular for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Verse 9, not a result of work, so that no, uh, no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, his poetry created in christ jesus for good works which god prepared beforehand that we should walk in them our grave situation in four through ten meets the great grace of god that's what happens in verse four through ten we are in trouble more threatening more urgent than we can imagine and the grace of god slams into us and here's how the grace of god is expressed verse eight we are saved that god saves us That's the grace of God shining, that he saves. We sing it this morning, that our God, he saves. That's what he's about. Okay, now here's the thing with this. That is a universal need. We all need the saving. We are all born in such a way that without the saving, it is doom, it is crisis. We all need the saving. More than we need food and water, more than you need your kidney, you need to be saved. That's what we need above all else. So he gives some clarification. How are we saved? What is this salvation? Um, So so look at this in verse 5 and 6. Salvation is in Jesus. It's in Christ. Look at verse 5. How are we made alive? We are made alive by God in or with who? Christ. Christ. That's how we're made alive. Salvation is always in Christ, never apart from Christ. It is always through Christ. That is how we are saved. Like, Notice this contrast in these verses. You have got, we were dead in sin, but in Christ, we have been made alive. We were enslaved to sin. But look at verse 6. In Christ, we have risen with Him. Right? We're condemned in sin. But in Christ, we are seated with Him. And remember where Christ is seated? Look back in chapter 1, verse 21. Far above our rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. That's where Christ is. And in Christ, that's where we are. We get to sit at his right hand there. We get to pray and plead at His right hand. We get to live and learn at His right hand. And when your body dies and my body dies, when we breathe our last, we get to live forever with Him at His right hand. And all of that is in Christ. All of it. So salvation is in Jesus. Look at verse 5. Into verse 5 salvation is by grace look at verse 8 you're saved how by grace salvation is by grace that is the unmerited favor of god on you that is how you are saved if you've got desires for jesus it's grace if you love jesus it's grace if you want jesus it's grace we are saved by grace 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 is the initiating work of god to change your heart that's what grace is. It changes you. You can't make yourself want it. Only God can do that. And that's grace. Okay, next one here. Salvation is apart from works. Look at verse 8. It's not your own doing. It is apart from works. Like, I love to ask people this question. It kind of ties in with this last one. It's by grace. Why are you saved and your neighbor is not? You ever thought about that question? Why are you saved and this person not saved? Why is that? Why is it you and not them? I mean, is it because you're smarter than they are? I mean, because your heart just i mean—just feels a little bit different than them? Is it because you got educated a little bit differently? I mean, what is it that separates you saved somebody else that is not saved? Here's what Ephesians 2 is saying. The thing that separates it is grace. God's free grace is the only difference. See, we've got this picture of salvation as God takes 9,999 steps toward us and we take one. The problem is dead people don't take steps. That's the problem. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is saying, it is not your own doing. It is not you taking a step. You can't take the step. It is God taking all of the steps. That's how we're saved. Um, this is one of the funniest things. Uh, this has been a few months ago. I had a friend tell me the story of Um a young dad got a one-year-old daughter He is woken up in the middle of the night terrifying terrifying scream going on out of his kid's room He runs into the bedroom and his one-year-old daughter has got a nasty diaper in her hand She has smeared it all over the wall She has smeared all over the rails and she's all over the bed all over herself. It is everywhere he does what any good guy would do, right? W- runs back in the room. Mom, I think she was crying for you, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think she wants you to, I don't know. She just said she was sleeping bad. I don't know. You can check it out. <laughs> so so he, he picks up the little girl, picks up his daughter, takes her into the bathroom, turns the faucet on, gets, gets the water just the right temperature, fills the tub up, puts his little girl in the bathtub. He gets to washcloth and scrubs for like four hours, right? Scrubs her down, cleans her off. Nothing left. No stain left. No streak left. She's clean. Brings her out, dries her off, wraps her in a towel, goes in and puts her by Mama's side. Goes back in the room, gets the disinfectant, probably several bottles, right? Gets the paper towels and he goes to work throws the sheets in the washer, puts on new sheets, cleans the rails, cleans the walls, cleans the ceilings. How did he even get up there? Cleans the sea. I mean, (laughs) gets nine cans of Febreze, right? It, It smells good even. Goes back in, gets his little baby girl, puts her back in the crib, sits in the chair beside her, reads until she goes to sleep. Now look at me here. That little girl didn't jump out of that crib, didn't jump into the bathtub, didn't clean her bed. She was incapable of it. We are that little baby in the crib, incapable of cleaning ourselves. Not even, know, listen, not even knowing that we need to be cleaned. But our great God does, and our great God did, right? That's the, Isn't that humbling? I mean, look at Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. What's the result of that in, in verse 9? It's not your doing. And what's the reason? So that you cannot boast. That's the reason. That it is God's free grace that has saved you. It is Him that pulled you up out of the bed, you being joyful and content in it. And He washed you and cleaned you and set you back there. That's our great God. It's apart from works. Last couple and we then salvation is about the glory of God and your joy. We'll take our joy first. It is about your joy. Look at verse eight for by grace, you have been saved. Is there anything better than being a part of that? You being a part of those that have been saved. Is there anything better than that? Is there anything greater than being saved by God? No longer dead in sin, but being made alive. There is nothing greater on the planet. There is nothing more important on the planet. God has saved us. That is our joy. We get the joy. God has saved us. But here's the beautiful thing. We get the joy. God gets the glory. Look at verse 7. Why did God save us? Look at what it says there. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Why did he save us? He saved us so that we could be a trophy of his grace for the rest of our lives and for eternity. Listen, God saving you is more about him than you. It says more about the king than the traitor's. God saving you is to put God on display, his mercy, his love, his grace on display for the rest of eternity. There will be a day when, when this earth is, is recreated. Everything is made new. Everything is perfect. And we will get to sit and be in wonder and amazement of this fact. Not the Cowboys. Not our team that's done this. We will be in wonder and amazement of that grace that's saved. It's to show off the grace of God. We get the joy. He gets the glory. Last two. Salvation leads to great attempts for the glory of God. This is what salvation does. Okay, now, now hear this. It is not just God saving you from something. It is God saving you for something. Are you hearing that? It is not just God saving you from being dead, from condemned, from being enslaved. It is also Him saving you for some things. And listen, we don't work for our salvation. We can't. We're dead. But when we are saved, we work like crazy. Not to earn God's grace, but because of God's grace. Not to earn His favor, but because His favor rests on us. We work like madmen. That's what we do. Look at verse 10 for we are his workmanship. That's a word of poetry, of artistry. We are his poetry, his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works. When we are in Christ, we have been created new. That's 2 Corinthians five seventeen, right? When you're in Christ, you're a new creation. He makes all things new, gives you new desires, new hopes, new dreams, a new course for your life. That is what God does for us. I, I love the story of Augustine massive figure in church history, lived in the kind of the late 300s, early 400s. There was a time that, or kind of pre-Christ, apart from Christ, he was a sex addict. It kept him from coming to Jesus. He was addicted to sexual sin. God saves him, makes him alive, rescues him from that enslavement, and saves him. Years later, he goes back to one of the cities that he had done some work in, and one of his old mistresses saw him, and she starts making passes at him. And he's not biting on the passes. And so she looks at him and finally just gets offended and walks off. And as she's walking off, this thought comes to her. Well, maybe he doesn't know who I am. Maybe he's just forgotten me. So so she looks back and says, Augustine, it is I. And he looks back at her and says, oh, I know. But it is not I. That is the picture being made new. That you are created in Christ. It is no longer I. It is a new one, right? Okay, now look at what he does that for. Creates you in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand. Ephesians chapter 1, God chose you beforehand. Ephesians chapter 2, he has given you works beforehand, last phrase, that we should walk in them. I love this. Verse 2, we are walking in, in our trespasses and sins. That's what we're walking in apart from Christ. Verse 10, God has made us alive, and now we have got a whole new walk. We are walking in him and these works he has prepared for us. Christians in this room, here's your question for the morning. If you would claim to be a Christian in this room, are you walking in those works? Are you currently in the middle of something that it would take God to do? Or have you settled into your comfort? Have you settled into your kind of secure little safety net thing going on? Or are you asking God for things that it would only take Him to do? And listen, I, I am all for growing businesses and I'm all for growing a lot of these different things. But I, here's what I'm really for I am all for great attempts for the glory of God. Do you have attempts for the glory of God, not your own name, but for the glory of God that are before you? So if you're growing your business, it is for the glory of God and the works he has prepared in advance for you, not your own. So do you have attempts before you that would be God-honoring, God-glorifying, huge, massive attempts? It would only, I mean, it would take God for them to come to fruition. Do you have those in front of you? If I were to come to you and say, what is one thing you're thinking about right now that would take God to happen? you have an answer for that? And you know what I find? So few Christians walk in that. So few. He says, I have prepared those in advance for you, created you, fashioned you for those. And we'll close it with this. So salvation leads to great attempts for the glory of God and salvation is through faith. Look at verse 8. For you are saved by grace through faith. Faith is not a work. Faith is not a, we take this step. That is not what faith is. Faith is a response to the step God has taken. Faith is a a response to the grace of God that has hit our lives. That's what faith is. It's not a work. It is a response. It is us holding up our lives after the grace of God has hit us, and we say in response, I am yours. Enjoy, I give you all of me, surrendered everything. Faith is trusting in and treasuring Jesus. That's what it is. It's not acknowledging facts. It's not saying, I believe God rose or died and rose again. It's not that. It is saying I I believe those things, and I am joyfully trusting and treasuring those things. Joyfully surrendered. That's faith. It's a response to that. So if you are outside of Christ, God is saying, your condition, more urgent, more threatening than anything you can imagine. Faith. If God is working in your heart, you respond appropriately. Faith is how we go from being an object of wrath to an object of his affection. So if you're apart from Christ in this room, here would be my question for you. Has that happened? Have you responded in faith? I'm going to close with these words from Charles Spurgeon. We read this about, oh, maybe two months ago. I think it's a great close for us today. Ending a service, he is pleading with people to respond in faith. That if you're apart from Christ, your condition is dead and slave condemned. In Christ, everything changes. And he's pleading with people to respond in faith. This is what he says. It'll be up on the screen for you. I plead with every unconverted, unbelieving soul within this place. And I plead as for my life. Friend, are you at war with God? Are you at war with God? You are at war with God and God is angry with you. But on his part, on God's part, there is every readiness for reconciliation. He has made a way by which you can become his friend. A very costly way to himself, but that way is free to you. He could not give up his justice and so destroy the honor of his own character. But he did give up his son, his only begotten, his well-beloved and that son of his has been made sin for us, though he knew no sin. See how God meets you. See how willing, how anxious he is that there should be reconciliation between himself and guilty men. O oh, sirs, O oh, man's if you are not saved, it's not because God will not or cannot save you. It is because you refuse to receive his mercy in Christ. If there is any difference between you and God today, it's not from lack of kindness on his part. It is from lack of willingness on yours. The burden of your eternal ruin must lie at your own door. Your blood must be on your own hands. And if you're apart from Christ today, here would be my plea with you. It doesn't have to be ruined. It can be reconciliation, relationship. God will save you. Let's pray. So if you would claim to be in Christ, here's my question for you. Are you walking in those works? Like, I I just love that contrast. Verse 2, you were walking in that. Verse 10, I've created you, prepared for you to walk in these, these works. So are you walking in them? Do you need God to give you fresh vision for, for what he wants to do in you? It is not by accident that you find yourself in your neighborhood at your workplace, in your family? That is all God's initiative. Are you walking in great works there? Are you attempting great things for the glory of God? Daddies, if your son came up to you and said, what are we doing as a family that would be a God-honoring, God-glorifying attempt? What are we doing? I mean, is life really about us playing baseball? I mean, is life really about that or is life about this? I mean, what would you respond to him in that moment? Wives in here, how would you respond if, if your daughter, your son, your husband comes to you and says, what are we doing It would be a great and God-glorifying attempt? I want to encourage you to walk in that, to pray for that. And if you are not in Christ in this room, I just want to plead with you. There's nothing greater than being saved nothing greater. There's nothing more important than being saved. There's nothing you need more than being saved. So if that has not happened, if you have not responded in faith to God's grace that has has hit your heart, that has warmed your heart, that has changed your heart, may this be a wonderful time for you to do that. On your guest card, you can check the box that says, um, I want to walk in. I want to learn what a relationship with Christ looks like. Now, I'd encourage you to check that box. We'll follow up with you this week. And we'd love to have that conversation with you. So we'll, we'll end today. Um, we'll stand and we'll sing. And as we sing, now I, I really want to press this. Next week, we, we're praying that God would give us 25 first-time families for us to love and bless and encourage. Get the gospel too. That we would walk in those sort of works that we would think about families that we can get the gospel to, that we would think about families that we can invite, that we would think about families that we can be an active agent that God would use to get his grace there, that we would be a part of that. So may God give us great hopes, great visions. We'd walk in great works. God, I love you. God, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for how Ephesians 2 cuts us down and how ultimately it changes everything. It makes us new. God, how it sobers us, but then how it satisfies us. So God, I pray that that you might burn that into us. God, I pray that, that we would be people who walk in that. Who, like Paul, believe it, proclaim it, and walk in light of it. So God, help us. God, we tell you that we need your help. We need your grace in that. It's in your great and glorious name that we pray. Amen.